It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Amy, what was the best part of last week? Well, like you, I really enjoyed meeting your family and then doing the sandwiches. It was so fun. It was very fun. Yeah. And, and was, my mother-in-law didn't know Blink-182, so that's why we had to start with some Blink-182. I know. I was like, what's that about? <laughs> but she was very sweet and yeah, yeah, yeah. very nice. And then it was just fun having my daughter was gone, has been gone for three weeks, yeah. my middle one. So it was nice getting her back home. And that just feels good, having yeah. everyone home again. Well, good. So we talked about some of the huge poverty issues that many of the people in India face when we were discussing the Kindness Diaries. Right, yeah. In episode 18, there was that sweet story about how Leon, the author of the Kindness Diaries, was taken in by a driver of a little taxi cab cart, and he rewarded the family with a new cab and money for his kids' education. Oh, yeah. So remember when he helped people, they didn't know that he was going to reward them. They were just doing it out of the kindness of their heart. but. Anyway, you have to go watch the show or read the book. There just was so much poverty, and the kids were so amazing, making do with what little they had. Yeah. So I came across this organization that's trying to help out the poorest of the poor and people in the most underprivileged areas in India by making playgrounds for the children. Oh. Ant Hill Creations was started by Pooja Ray, who has a degree in architecture in 2015. Pooja noted that so many communities in India didn't have any kind of playgrounds for the children. She believed that playing is essential to health, both physical and mental, and decided to do something about the lack of playgrounds around India. She had visited there and said that these kids were just playing, you know, on broken cement and these tubes. It was just very dangerous. So she wanted to do something about it. She and several of her friends started to design play structures that could be made from upcycled materials. So oh, this is what this so is what drew awesome. me to this. So environmental, too. exactly. That's so cool. So most of the things were taken from landfills. The most commonly used materials they use are car tires, which they use to make tunnels, climbing structures, swings, oh. and other play equipment. It's adorable because they have it's like a community involvement, and so people come out and paint these. Um, play structures and so the community like cares for the the kits that she's put together for these playgrounds that's so great metal barrels huge wooden wire spools and other reclaimed items they use like those oil drums okay yeah um for things all reclaimed items that are made fun and engaging structures for the kids. The playgrounds are brightly colored with lots of vibrant yellow, reds, and purples. The pictures I've seen of these playgrounds really show the creativity and ingenuity of the people who design the playgrounds and the faces of the kids. Oh, oh my gosh. I bet it's priceless. They're just so happy to yeah. have this environment to play in. And you feel better about it because it's safe. It's right. not the broken cement tubing. And But while in school, Pooja was doing a women's entrepreneur course. And as part of it, she visited a school in a particularly poor region of India. She was dismayed seeing that the playground that the children had made, mostly of concrete, offered very little in the way of physical engagement. And she wanted to change that. Oh. She said, I believe that play is not a luxury. It's a necessity for every single child. Play is disappearing at home, at school, and in communities, particularly for the 27% of Indian population living in poverty. 
27%. Children are missing out on the childhood they deserve. I couldn't agree with her more. Ann Hill Creations works with communities to find spaces that can be transformed in playgrounds. They encourage community involvement, not only in the selection of the site, but also the design and the construction. And like I said, these people are coming out and helping right. maintain it and paint it and whatnot. Most of the funding for the program comes from grants and donations from corporations, although they sometimes get some local government money and, of course, receive individual donations. Each year, they've upcycled around 31 tons of material, mostly from landfills, to create their playgrounds. Awesome. I just think it's That's a so win. Great. Win. Yeah. Wish we could do that here. But one of the goals of this program is to make sustainable playgrounds using almost exclusively recycled materials. Many of the planned developments had to be put on hold due to COVID, which hit India particularly hard in the poorest regions where there's little access to healthcare. As COVID spread, playgrounds and parks were closed and more and more children were trapped inside. Ant Hill Creations made a pivot. Oh. Um, they began making these game boxes called Play in a Box that had games to help keep kids entertained as well as provide some learning. That's Particularly, so cool. It's very cool. They yeah. weren't, it's not upcycled or sustainable stuff, but still, right. the boxes contained five simple games that encouraged movement, taught numbers, and used both English and the regional language to help with vocabulary. The games were designed to help with social interaction and teamwork. They're trying to get out over 10,000 of these plain box kits, focusing on areas where the option of online learning is not present yeah. due to lack of technology. Additionally, they published resources to help teach kids and parents how to make toys and games from household materials, particularly cardboard. That's awesome. Pooja believes that the pandemic could be an opportunity to improve our world. She said, in the beginning, it left all of us helpless. But in a year's time, I've seen people come together a lot more often to help each other, she adds. It made a lot of us hit rock bottom and rise again. It's taught us to be hopeful, patient innovative at times of crisis but most of all it's made us more empathetic humans how beautiful is that that. so i know i seem like i'm totally obsessed with iron man after talking about the hoyts a couple weeks ago and then touching on the iron nun yeah and i probably am a little the triathlons always intrigued me and for someone who doesn't even like football games, like when you said that that yeah. was your yeah. thing, they yeah. drag out forever. I know. So I I get it that they're boring to watch, but it's funny that I'm not bored watching the Ironman championships when they when they go to Kona. COVID has obviously put a damper on the racing scene, but there's one young man who didn't allow it to stop him. While most of us were just struggling to get through quarantine and the pandemic, Chris Nickick was thriving. Chris completed a full Ironman last November in Florida and is inspiring those around him to stop making excuses and conforming to societal standards. He inspires others with his 1% better every day in every aspect of life. It's a mantra that he preaches. And he lives. Yeah. Chris was born with Down syndrome and said he grew up feeling isolated and left out, which just broke my heart to read that. He found comfort in sports and as a teenager enjoyed running, swimming, and playing basketball with the Special Olympics. So I followed portions of Chris's Ironman journey since they were sharing updates on USA Triathlon. He fell off his bike a couple of times. He had a bloody knee. He was attacked by ants during a nutrition stop. Oh, gosh. So he did not have an easy 140 miles, but he still finished within the 17-hour time limit. That's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. He got a congratulatory note from Billie Jean King, Kara Goucher, and he got another 33,000 followers on his Instagram account. (laughs) So he 
He blew up. Yeah, that's All so very cool. impressive. But I'm mostly inspired that he just kept pushing past barriers in society, not to mention the physical barriers. Just talk about heart. Yeah, All totally. Totally. Now that he's done with this, he's focusing on the 2022 Special Olympic Games and wants to raise money for Down syndrome and RODS, which is Racing for Orphans with Down Syndrome, which sounds like a, a very worthwhile organization. I recently read the book Eunice, the Kennedy Who Changed the World, and I've most definitely concluded that Eunice Shriver has been the most influential Kennedy of the bunch. Wow. Kids like Chris get to participate in sports and other physical activities and competitions because of programs like Special Olympics. Eunice created Special Olympics, and her story is yet another example of someone making the best of a bad situation. I didn't know much about the Kennedys before this book, besides the fact that they were America's Camelot. Right. I was also familiar with the Kennedy curse and a few things from the tabloids throughout the years. In most ways, I want to keep it that way. I'd rather focus on JFK's heroic war efforts and how he encouraged physical fitness instead of focusing on his wandering eyes, (laughs) which is what they seem to talk a lot about. And I'd rather talk about the charitable efforts of Rose Kennedy and how she led the grandparents' parade when she was 90. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, the Special Olympics. Instead of focusing on her questionable parenting traits, I I just think part of it was the time and the era with how much money they had, but... All that to say, I'm well aware of the imperfections of the Kennedys after this book. Many of them seemed, I want to say, stem from the patriarch of the family, Joseph Kennedy Sr. He, and if you believe in karma, I kind of think that maybe he might be the root cause of the curse just after reading this book. But anyway, also with that, they use a lot of the R word just because at the time, right? it it just, that's what was used. So there are going to be times where I am going to mention it, um, with their quotes, but yeah, we all have flaws and then Kennedy's were human, just like the rest of us. They just had a lot of money, power and influence. So as I've learned during this podcast, a lot of things, I know me too, which I love, but it takes all types of people to change the world. Sometimes it's people who are well off and other times it's the exact opposite. But one consistency among our inspirational finds has been that they grow or make the best out of bad situations. And Eunice Kennedy is no exception. In some ways, I could understand people saying, you know, poor little rich girl, since the Kennedy children didn't go without anything. Yeah. And this definitely covers that. They had extended European vacations, sailing, tennis, fancy designer clothing, jewelry, cars, and all of this extravagance at a time when the world was experiencing the Great Depression. Joseph Kennedy expected greatness of his boys, the girls and his family not so much. I think that's kind of part of the time, too. Yeah, I think so, too. And to keep reminding myself that with some of these. Otherwise, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. I think Eunice struggled With the box he wanted to keep her in, she was smart and physically active, just like the Kennedy boys. But because she was a girl, he didn't encourage the same avenues as the men in the family. Joseph Sr. was the first Kennedy plotting the course into politics, and most likely because of the time, that meant he only focused on his boys. Right. So Eunice was not part of that. Unfortunately, at the time, women were only attached by marriage to politicians, so they most certainly were not running for office. I think it, it was a time that too often women were only expected to be seen yeah. and not really heard. I'm just oh. so relieved that's no longer the case. Yeah, totally. Not only do we have intelligent and worthy women 
running for office, but spouses also that make an impact for yeah. their causes. So they're not just quiet anymore. You talked about uh, Laura Bush. Oh, yeah. With her background in education being such a great sounding board for GW and with Eleanor Roosevelt promoting social progress just as much as her husband, right. I would argue. Yeah, for but, sure. Well, it was sad that the Kennedy girls didn't have the same opportunities as their brothers. Even more tragic was the treatment of their sister, Rosemary. From today's standards, Rosemary would have a fourth grader's comprehension. Okay. She was intellectually challenged at a time when so little was known about it. And unfortunately, it too often meant shame, embarrassment, Aww. and, and yeah. it, there just was a stigma with it. Rosemary had intellectual struggles, but she was a happy, active young woman. The Kennedy kids loved their sister and included her in everything from sailing to tennis. Aww. So Joseph's, um, the Joseph Jr., and then there was Jack. Yeah. And then you had Kathleen, her next sister, and then Eunice, and then Rosemary was the next one. Sadly, Rosemary didn't measure up to Joseph Sr.'s standards. He had a certain reputation to maintain, and she just didn't fit in with it. Mm. He and Rose, the mom, so it was Rose and Joseph Sr., they thought it was better for Rosemary to be institutionalized. So obviously they could afford for the best care, but the letters that they talked about that she would write home to her siblings, Rosemary would write home to her siblings, were just heartbreaking. She wanted to spend Easter with her family, and she would ask her siblings to send the longest letters possible to catch her up on the family and and likely to just occupy some time. Right. She just missed her family, which is just so heartbreaking. Yeah. It was such an embarrassment to Joseph Sr. that he lied about her whereabouts, saying she was away teaching, when in fact she was in an institution, excelling and making some real progress. But for him, it was just, it was too much of an embarrassment, I'm sure. I just don't get it. I don't either. But their money and prestige provided them opportunities that most others didn't have. When a doctor approached Joseph Kennedy Sr. with a radical surgery that might improve or cure his challenged daughter, he obviously Agreed. Oh. Procedure, we all know, was a lobotomy. Oh, and I'm not yeah. sure of the science behind it. It removed parts of her brain, and it, unfortunately, with Rosemary, it left her unable to pretty much do anything. She was unable oh, to no. communicate. and Sort of bad. Horrible. Yeah. I think the kids were devastated, and sadly, Rosemary would spend the rest of her life institutionalized. Oh. She lived a full life, but not the happy-go-lucky right. human that she deserved. Eunice was the fifth of nine children, and she suffered from uh, Addison's disease, which I'm not I had with that. I guess JFK had it okay. as well. It's an adrenal disorder. She had stomach ulcers, colitis, nervous exhaustion. She a lot of the pictures she does look sickly. Okay. Oh. Her mother was always on her case to gain weight, since she's kind of just always looking emaciated. As a child, they would call her puny uni, <laughs> which. That's mean, but, but okay. I think all these siblings, they just, I know. yeah. I think it was a different were. sort yeah. of family banter, maybe. Yeah. JFK, so Jack had convinced the family to send Eunice to Stanford for okay. the weather. He was out there, and he thought the West Coast sunshine made his symptoms more manageable compared to the dreary East Coast weather. Right. So she went to Stanford, graduated in 1944, majoring in sociology, worked for the State Department, reorienting prisoners of war oh, after wow. World War II. So she also spent time as a social worker in Alderson, West Virginia, at a penitentiary for women, and it goes into that. Like oh. she was so ahead of her time with yeah, her thinking. Yeah, I'm gonna say even get going and getting a college degree at that yeah. time. Yeah. Well, it just 
She was ahead of her time with, if we take care of social issues, yeah. then maybe they won't end up in the prisons. Maybe they won't end up doing drugs. Maybe right. they, she was just... Breaking um, the cycle. Yeah, she was ahead of her time with her thinking. But so she worked for a time at the penitentiary, as well as the Justice Department as a coordinator for the National Conference on Prevention and Control of Juvenile Delinquency. Her heart was for the less fortunate, and that was clear. But, and I, I think it might have been a result of her affiliation with the Catholic Church, a lot of them in the family commented that Eunice was the most likely of the Kennedy bunch to be a, a nun because she was the most religious. Obviously, yeah. she wasn't going to be a nun, but right, right, she but would be most likely. She had the strongest religious ties. Obviously, she didn't have to work. Yeah. She worked because she wanted to, and she wanted to make a difference. She accepted one paycheck early on from her first at the U.S. State Department. It was for $60. She immediately mailed it to her father in Palm Beach, Florida, and told him to spend it on something grand. So after that, she volunteered. She didn't take money from them. And I guess this was customary. It wasn't uncommon for wealthy females to volunteer in interesting positions until they got married. Okay. So it wasn't that unheard of. The Kennedy fortune might have made some things easier, but it definitely complicated other areas. Her sister, like I said, Kick, had died in a plane crash when her and her boyfriend decided to make a quick trip to meet his parents. The Kennedy fortune also couldn't protect the boys when they were sent to war. Joseph Kennedy Sr. originally worked for FDR, but later he would despise him for not keeping his promise to stay out of the war. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just sad. But Joseph Kennedy Jr. had been the Kennedy they were grooming for political office. Okay. I think Joseph Sr., that was the plan. He'd done his tours and was allowed to leave a duty when he volunteered for a dangerous mission during World War II. I just watched this episode on Netflix with JFK, and they noted, they talked about this particular mission, and they said it was basically like a kamikaze type mission. So I think... Joseph Kennedy Jr. Yeah. He was probably not going to come out of this, but they had explosives to ignite just in case, and they didn't make it to the planned bombing site, and his plane uh, exploded. He died instantly, obviously. The Kennedys established Joseph Kennedy Jr.'s Memorial Foundation in 1946. they've had a lot of loss. So much. Yeah. So much tragedy. They started that foundation in 1946 to honor the oldest sibling because Joseph Kennedy Jr. Was, was the oldest of the Kennedy kids. The foundation had two main objectives, to seek the prevention of intellectual disability by identifying the causes and to improve the means by which society deals with citizens with intellectual disability. Oh. So Eunice was the perfect person to oversee the foundation. Yeah, for sure. Also in 1946, there was a cocktail party in New York City where Sergeant Shriver, a Navy veteran, also he was Catholic, so he was family approved. Right. And he was working for her father. He met Eunice. And for Eunice, she wasn't interested in romance. Right. At all. I wouldn't say she was a player, but she had money and she didn't really seem to need a man to take care of. She was a busy, busy enough with other things in yeah. her life. She just wasn't interested. But it sounds like Sergeant Shriver, on the other hand, was smitten with her from the beginning. Oh, cute. While he was successful in his own way, they were clearly raised in different worlds. The book talked about a conference or something they were attending at some hotel where Eunice had thousands of dollars worth of jewelry stolen from her bedside. She left on her bedside. And apparently she pretended to be asleep. They tried to take her mink jacket. She was they were taken off with her mink coat. They must have dropped it because she had half-eaten jujubes <laughs> in her pockets. That's pretty Which, who does that? It's yeah. Disgust. But anyway, yeah. I do. I think it's hilarious that she pretended to be asleep because I probably would do the same thing. 
But a few doors down, Sergeant Shriver was also robbed. And I think that it was like $35. I mean, it was minimal out of his wallet. He just, like, the caliber of... It's so different. Yeah. Their worlds were very different. But in 1953, they married at St. Patrick's Cathedral in front of about 1,700 guests. Wow, that's a large wedding party. Yeah. Yeah. In 1958, they were asked to run the Joseph Jr. Memorial Foundation. Obviously, the family had other aspirations. They were thinking about JFK. Yeah. And he was elected president in 1960. And Jack asked Sergeant Shriver to run the Peace Corps. Oh, okay. Which, pretty awesome. Yeah. Also, so they were real, that couple's a real service-oriented couple. You know. There, there's a picture of Sergeant Shriver in here that has, they had a shirt made with Eunice, and it was like um, Nun Eunice or oh. Mother Eunice. It was oh, Mother cute. Eunice. It was adorable. Oh. They definitely were here to serve people. Yeah. They wanted to make the world a better place. President Kennedy enabled Eunice to create the National Institute on Child Health and Development and the President's Committee on Mental Retardation. This was historic for a number of reasons. For generations, the mentally disabled were hidden in shame and secrecy, and the Kennedys started this campaign that eventually would evolve to a larger disability rights movement. That's so awesome. I mean, I'm glad that, yeah. yeah. More funding meant mental retardation could move from isolation and public indifference to a beginning of acceptance and an educational opportunity. And Eunice totally saw that and got it going. She thrived behind the scenes, using her brother's influence and connections to improve conditions for those living with intellectual disabilities. And she pushed for research and education in the area. Robert Kennedy, the uh, attorney general, and JFK would say, Let's give Eunice whatever she wants so we can get on with the business of government. And I can't help but love that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel like if I bug people enough, they'll come work, you know, they'll want to work out with me. Right. So I I think I take after her in that area. In 1962, Shriver told the world about Rosemary in the Saturday Evening Post with the headline, Hope for Retarded Children. Once again, I absolutely love this, but I hate the use of the R word. Right. But I, I love her transparency. Right. She didn't talk about the lobotomy from 1941, but she was honest and open about the sister they adored. Yeah. I read that Eunice thought Rosemary was the most beautiful of the Kennedy girls, and if you look at pictures of them, she I mean, they're all beautiful, but really, she was. Also in 1962, Eunice organized Camp Shriver in their backyard. Oh. Very cute. Yeah. She knew how active Rosemary had been, and how active those with intellectual disabilities could be. The goal of Camp Driver was to explore the children's skills in a variety of sports and activities. Kids from 6 to 16 were invited, and young volunteers were encouraged to spend one-on-one time with the campers. Oh, that's so neat. I love that this was 1962. That's something you'd see today. Yeah. This is where it started. That's so cool. A second-day camp for kids with intellectual disabilities opened the day after in Washington, D.C., and it was funded by the Joseph Kennedy Jr. Foundation. It was established to encourage summer camps, and year-round programs for the intellectually disabled. I love the notion that Eunice was pushing her brothers uh, to do more for this group. I mean, she was like the squeaky wheel to get this done. She wanted to influence change makers, but she wanted to do it from the shadows, and she wasn't into the publicity aspect of it. In February of 1963, President Kennedy announced a new approach to, quote, addressing the needs of people with mental retardation and mental illness, the Maternal and Child Health and Mental Retardation Planning Act, which would grant $265 million in federal aid, 
over five years to support programs for the mentally challenged. Also proposed was a $330 million grant over five years. Wow, that's a lot of money. Especially back then. Yeah, 1963. To provide new buildings to serve disabled citizens. The Kennedy Foundation camps became nationwide in the summer of 1963, including nearly 800 young people with intellectual disabilities. That fall, President Kennedy signs the first major legislation to specifically address mental retardation and mental illness. He signs a second bill to fund construction of facilities that will provide treatment and research for people with intellectual disabilities. So those grants that he was pushing for, he signed for them. We all know the tragedy that followed on November 22nd, 1963. And I can't even imagine the heartache. Losing the sister she knew and loved to a lobotomy in 1941, followed with her oldest brother, Joe, in the war in 1944, losing Kick, her carefree and free-spirited older sister in that plane crash in 1948, and then losing her brother this way. Yeah. I mean, I I just, I can't even wrap my head around it. It must have been just beyond devastating. But the cause was more important than her pain. The following summer, Camp Shriver opened for a third round and they included a consultant this time, Dr. James Oliver from England. He had a groundbreaking study in 1958 noting the positive effects that carry over into the classroom after kids with intellectual disabilities participated in physical exercise. Okay, wow. With her brother gone, Eunice was forced to come to the forefront and lead the movement to not only change the way we view intellectual disability, but to come up with ways to include them in normal activities in everyday life. Eunice worked with researchers and scientists to better understand and explain intellectual disability. By the summer of 1967, Camp Shriver-type day camps offered summer activities for over 7,000 intellectually disabled kids. Wow. That still wasn't enough for Eunice. She envisioned more, which I love. Yeah. But of course she did. She's a Kennedy. Yeah. She thought big. Yeah. Dream big. In June 1968, the first International Special Olympics Summer Games were held in Soldier Field in Chicago, a collaboration of the Kennedy Foundation and the Chicago Park District. With the competitors from 26 states and Canada, they had about 1,000 competitors. This was clearly a competition, not just for fun. A reminder that those kids were exceptional children. They offered over 200 events, including broad jump, softball, 25-yard swim, 100-yard swim, high jump, 50-yard dash, water polo, just a number of events. Keep in mind, too, that this was just weeks after Robert Kennedy's murder. Oh, my goodness. I... Shriver pledged that the games would be held every two years. In the 70s, they added the winter games. So then it ended up being the winter summer games would be every four years, just like the Olympics. Olympics. Yeah. With participants as young as eight, which I love. That's great. And now they have over 150 countries participating and 2.5 million competitors. That's so cool. Not too bad for Puny Uni. (laughs) Her story definitely inspires me on so many levels. She wanted a type of approval her dad just couldn't provide. Yeah. She she didn't let that stop her, though. She wanted an education and the same opportunities offered to men, even if it meant smoking cigars (gasps) at times with meetings. She wanted to be part of this meeting. Right. And... But and that was a generational thing. Um, they just didn't see women in the same light. Finally, I'm not sure I could have kept going with all the loss yeah. and heartache she endured. She had the finances. She could have done whatever she wanted. She right. could have gone and bought stuff and just distracted herself to take her mind off of things. But instead, she focused on her goals. I absolutely agree with the title that Eunice Kennedy is one that changed the world. 
Sadly, I had no idea who she was <laughs> until a few weeks ago. But this woman inspires me to get out there and do more. According to her husband, Sergeant Shriver said that Eunice, quote, didn't believe that there were human beings who were useless or hopeless. I just yeah. love that. Oh. Love that her husband would say that about her. Mm-hmm. But what touched me even more was what her daughter, Maria Shriver, said about her. Nobody else's mother was doing anything like that. It was always my mother following her own gut. Life is full of heartache, and the Kennedys aren't immune to that. We can either cower from it or use it to spark something in us. Obviously, I'd prefer we didn't have the pain at all. But since that isn't an option, I'm glad there are examples of people like Eunice making painful situations a little more manageable. Chris is inspiring a whole new generation of Special Olympic athletes, a concept stemmed from an unfair hand in life. Thank goodness Eunice played that hand she was dealt the way she did. The whole world gets to benefit from it. I'm embarrassed, so awesome. like I said, that yeah. I didn't know well, about her. But I, wow. I honestly didn't either. She yeah. is just amazing. Amazing lady. Love gave me confidence and adversity gave me purpose. Eunice Kennedy Shriver. You did it again, making an awesome book recommendation. <laughs> no, a couple weeks back, we're running the forest, as we call it. Which uh, will be tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow, six, or eight. Let's do eight. Oh, that's perfect. Weekend. Okay, yeah. good. But you had suggested uh, Boys in the Boat. That's by uh, Daniel James Brown. Awesome book. This is a story of nine young men from the University of Washington Huskies rowing team uh, who won the 1936 uh, Olympics in Berlin, Germany. The backdrop to this incredible story is the world, you know, is in the middle of financial crisis, the Great Depression. And meanwhile, you've got the horrors of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany just kind of coming to the attention of the world. Mm-hmm. And Hitler sees the, uh, the Olympic Games as an opportunity to portray Germany as this idyllic Aryan nation. Berlin almost sounds like a movie set with the preparations for the Olympic Games. Although not the Nazis have already started their horrendous anti-Semitic propaganda against the Jews. However, the Games, all signs of it are removed. So Germany appears to be the perfect host country. That Fast Girls book talks yeah. about that yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, it's really, as I'm reading this, it's really hard to fathom. I know. And the book goes back and forth between the Games being set up and then the story of these young men. So it's... It's kind of a contrast between these hardworking young men and then the gruesome beginnings of the mm-hmm. Holocaust. These young men uh, who made up the Husky rowing team were sons of loggers, fishermen, farmers, shipyard workers, and they could barely afford tuition. They worked hard doing like all sorts of odd jobs, dam building, manual labor during the summer, janitorial to busing tables during the school year just to make ends meet. And this was a rough time, like I said, in the country because of the financial strain. Mm-hmm. Some of these young men came from broken families and were forced at a very young age to kind of live on their own. One of the crewmen, Joe Rant's mom, died when he was four. His dad remarried, and his stepmom didn't like him. So at 10, he was living in the nearby schoolhouse, keeping the fire of the furnace going in exchange for his keep. Mm-hmm. And he would return living with his dad, stepmom, and siblings for a short bit. And then completely be on his own at 15, which I just can't imagine as no, a mom. We can't. <laughs> no. But I think things were so dire yeah. financially. Yeah. Sometimes there was... think of broken homes back then. No, but, yeah, there was just was. no... I don't think in some cases there was just no other options. Mm-hmm. That being said, these hardships served these young men well in that it created grit, which mm-hmm. helped them forge ahead in school and also eventually create this tight-knit crew of champions. 
The two West Coast rival schools were Cal Berkeley and then the UW. And Berkeley's head rowing coach was Kai Ebright, and he had taken his team to the 1932 Olympics in London and won gold. The UW head coach, Al Ulbrichsen, also had his eyes on the Olympics. And the East Coast school's rowing teams comprised of Princeton, Cornell, the Navy, New York Athletic Club. I'm not familiar with the New York Athletic Club, but that is a particular... But anyways, probably it, very fancy. Yeah, it took uh, Ulbrichsen time to figure out like this winning combination of men and then the, like their seat assignments to create this group of champions. But after about five months, just prior to the 1936 Olympics, the UW head coach assembled the following crew, Gordon Adam, Chuck Day, Donald Hume, George Shorty Hunt, Jim Stubb McMillan, Roger Morris, Johnny White, Joe Rance, and Coxon Bobby Moak. Which I just love some of their, their mm-hmm. names are really fun. I always want to see pictures. When yeah. I hear their names, I want to see pictures. Yeah. These young men, as Eulbrickson um, put it, had a certain character. They worked hard and had physical prowess. They spent most of their lives outdoors, and they were genuine types. They would extend a callous hand, basically solid young men. I was just amazed at this brutal training. I mean, the crew practice would start after classes and often go into the early evenings. Not to mention, they practiced nine months out of the year for two regattas. Mm-hmm. But maybe, I mean, I think it's probably just the beginning stages yeah. of, of this sport. But but still. That's, still, that's a lot. Yeah. There's one UW against Cal, and then they'd have one at um, Poughkeepsie, and that would be against all the Eastern um, colleges. And races would only last six to 16 minutes, depending on the length, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. A lot of work for such a short yeah. period of time. Uh, the conditions in Seattle, for the most of the year, are pretty brutal. And I know because I come from Seattle, but lots of rain and it's windy and it's choppy yeah. waters. But it actually made for excellent training conditions because mm. they could handle the worst. Yeah, and that year was really bad when yeah. I ran in festival. It was for, horrible yeah, for the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. So it actually proved them well. But over the five months prior to the Olympics, these nine men also created something that sometimes happens in rowing and is called a swing. As described in the book, it's like a team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual, not the self. I just love that description. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, po- it's beautiful. poetic. Yeah. And I love their mantra was LGB. They do these calls. And that would, they'd explain it to others as let's get better, but it really mm-hmm. meant let's go to Berlin. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like their code. Mm-hmm. But beyond this winning combination of young men, they were blessed to have George Pocock, who lived above the Shell House. George had a lineage of sculling and boat racing shell builders mm-hmm. in his family. He was born and raised in England. He apprenticed alongside his father, and he also studied the watermen of the Thames. So he became an expert at their techniques and actually taught Eton College men how to some of the these special techniques. Mm-hmm. And he really had this desire not only to create these, you know, really incredible racing shells, but also wanted to just to pass on those the skill. This, yeah. And so and I the knowledge. Thought, and the knowledge. Had. And I just thought that was really, really cool. So after the UW crew won the Olympic trials, they had to come up with five thousand dollars to pay their way to Berlin. It Which out to, just amazes me. That I mean, all that's of a lot. Had to be, yeah, that, that they had to find their own way to get there. I know these it's, are it's amazing incredible. athletes, but that's yeah, that just was yeah. So it was a statewide affair. I mean, they had the local chamber of commerce, the American Legion posts. I mean, everybody was kind of chipping in. 
They took an ocean liner, which I thought was from, it would call the Manhattan <laughs> yeah. to Germany, which took two weeks. Yeah. And when they arrived in Berlin, um, their shell, the Husky Clipper, had a crack and needed to be repaired. It just kind of seemed like the odds were stacked mm-hmm. against them. The actual final day of the race, they were assigned the worst lane assignment because it was that they were, where they were seated was where it was pretty strong headwinds. Mm-hmm. And to top it off, one of the oarsmen, Don Hume, had a horrible lung infection. Mm. The U.S. started off, they were initially lagging, uh, but in their true spirit, they turned it around and won, finishing the 2,000-meter race with a time of uh, 6 minutes, 25.4 seconds. Italy was just behind them at 6 minutes, 26 seconds, and then Germany at 6 minutes, 26 seconds, point four. So, I mean, it's so close. I mean, it's just like a hair, a little... It's really amazing to me, this story about how the, the coaching of Yulbrickson and then the boat building and mentoring of po- Pocock, and then just these amazing men all coming the together. and not having anything. Right. And just having, like you said, the grit to just keep pushing through. And I, I just really enjoyed reading about their journey. And for me, coming from Seattle, <laughs> I love reading about well, Seattle that's why during I thought this it'd time be so period. awesome because, yeah, it was just your area. It was such a great, great story. Good guys. So more of this kind of getting to know each other. <laughs> so uh, it's your turn, Teresa. So what sport did you try as a kid and fail at? Ballet. Does ballet count as a sport? I think so. Yeah. So yeah. Um, my sister, we <laughs> went to the <laughs> studio, and, and I I know I told you that my the instructor told my mom, you she said she probably look for another Aww. avenue to in other words and who says that who I says mean, they, that yeah exactly so not well not only they they want your money yeah. they want you to come come back learn to dance so clearly i was more work than she wanted no so yeah ballet Aww. ballet would would be that okay how about uh do you have a celebrity lookalike um shanae o'connor oh and when i told my family that they're like who is that I know, but so remember the remember the singer, yeah, who was on Saturday Night Live, right. and then she tore up a yeah, picture I of she, yeah. the Pope. That's who people would compare me to. Oh, so wow, yeah. Back when I was lifeguarding, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. I don't know who I look like, but that has yeah. been who people one said. Of, okay, one of the people that people, I'm not sure yeah. if I get that one. But okay, <laughs> good. I like that you say that. Okay. You know, I'm curious for you. Besides keys, wallet, is there and phone? Is there something else that you never leave home without? I'm glad you said phone because um, that's on there. But hand sanitizer. Oh, and that was before we need COVID. that. Oh, before yeah, COVID, you're the hand sanitizer. Yes, I. <gasps> probably, yes, yes. That's good. Okay. Yes. What blog or website are you embarrassed to admit you like or you look at or both? Um, <laughs> not necessarily blog, or I don't do much of that but one well two things yeah hoarders okay which is embarrassing that i i do it's kind of interesting it is it's like a train wreck you can't turn away um my favorite murder oh okay and the first hour is like you know all this nonsense like just bantering and talking back and forth so i have to get to the the meat of it but that's probably i and i haven't listened to it in a while but it's um guilty pleasure yeah awesome that's fun. Which Disney story can you most relate to? My family would say Cinderella. Okay. <laughs> My family would say that I would say Cinderella. But the girl in Zootopia, oh, I would think. Yeah. Um, I love or, that show. I, yeah. That, I, that might be my favorite Disney movie. It's up there at top. Yeah. One. 
But maybe Dory. Oh. And Nemo. <laughs> maybe. I yeah. Don't know. That's fun. Yeah. Life is short. Live it. Love is rare. Grab it. Anger is bad. Dump it. Fear is awful. Face it. Memory is sweet. Cherish it. Author unknown. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.